Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balfaran. Uh, more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Rennie Thomas, who is Assistant Professor uh, at the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Indian Institute of Science, Education, and Research in Madhya Pradesh. He's also a visiting fellow um, uh, in the Department of Cultural Anthropology and Cultural History at Friedrich Schiller University, Jena, Germany. Rainy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj. It's absolutely great to be here. So we're talking about a book that uh, that Rennie's just published uh, as part of the Rutledge Science and Religion series. So no doubt this podcast will be published to a number of relevant channels. The book, of course, is called Science and Religion in India Beyond Disenchantment. Uh, an intriguing, perhaps even provocative title. Tell us about the backstory. How did you? How did you? How did you end up pursuing this line of research? Yeah, great question. You see, as you, as you mentioned, you know, I'm essentially trained as an anthropologist. So, there's the interest in science and religion came, you know, while visiting some laboratory and scientific institutions in India. And when I was about to really propose my PhD work, I thought this is this is going to be a fascinating work, and that's how actually. Uh, my interest began and entered actually studying uh, some of the laboratories. So I did my fieldwork in Bangalore, actually, at uh, you know some of the uh, leading scientific institutions. I was interested in understanding, actually, as an anthropologist and as an ethnographer, how scientists actually deal with their everyday religious lives uh, beyond you know uh, their domestic spheres. You know, I was more interested in actually the existence of religion rituals. Uh, in the laboratories and uh, scientific institutions for a particular reason. Because when we study religion, you know, we don't really look at scientific laboratories to study religion. So I wanted to understand, you know, whether it is actually, whether it is possible to really look at non-sites of religion uh, to understand religion. So non-science such as, not sites such as uh, scientific laboratories, you know, hospitals, etc. In my case, it's the scientific laboratory. Yeah, that's how it began. 
Mm. Would you say, uh, to, to perhaps crudely generalize, which is uh, perfectly acceptable on podcasts, maybe not so much in, in journal articles, but um, uh, <laughs> would you say that the relationship between what we think of as, as what we, how we consider science and religion, would you say it's, it's, um, it's quite different in the Indian context? Yeah, it's quite different actually in the Indian context. There is no doubt about it. Of course, also precisely because of the fact that the diversity of religions uh, you know, the belief system that we have in India, right? So it's clearly different from the way the Abrahamic religions deal with science. So that's that really makes India a very uh, complicated case to look at actually science and religion. That's why I call it, actually, if you want to understand science and religion in India, we need to go beyond both the categories of uh, conflict and complementarity. Actually, both these categories are very, you know, it's, these are very limiting categories, actually, to understand the everyday life of science and religion in the Indian Indian context. So on the one hand, I would like to go with, uh, you know, the fact that uh, science and religion, they have very different lives in India, both for historical and sociological reasons. But also, I don't want to make it very, you know, as an essentialist idea that it is very completely unique in India. So that can also be dangerous. But I think uh, there is no doubt that actually the situation is quite different for historical and sociological reasons uh, in India, yes. You know, time and time again, both uh, in my particular niche as a scholar of Sanskrit narrative, but more importantly in this context as a as a, as a host, uh, who has the extraordinary privilege of, of 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 really having a glimpse into scores and scores and now hundreds of, of studies. Uh, time and time again, we see that really uh, it's both and it's it's either or is always it, it's it's hazardous in many situations but it seems like as soon as you enter south asia the either or thing just really falls apart quite easily and the both and mode is a uh, is something there's something in the air or the soil but um uh, so without putting words in your mouth it doesn't seem that science and religion are as mutually exclusive or as problematic or as much of a tension within uh the scientific community in in india would you say? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. I mean, that's not going to be, uh, you know, followed in my field book, for sure. Uh, but there are different narratives that I discuss in the book, actually. So you have, of course, a group of scientists would argue that there isn't a conflict, actually, between science and religion, and they give reasons for that. But then you also have, you know, scientists who disagree with that. But what is interesting is how they disagree is very different from their counterparts in the you know, or North American universities or Western university for sure. It's not uh, a binary rejection of say, you know, we are scientists, therefore, uh, you know, uh, we cannot be religious, but there are other reasons for that actually. And that, that's where the, I think they try to bring in the question of culture. For example, I have a whole chapter on atheist scientists actually. So even the atheist scientists actually practice atheism very differently in the Indian context. So they, they don't really want to, for example, take Richard Dawkins as the model, but there are other models for the magic. They would sometimes go back to the uh, ancient Indian text to refer to the school of rationalism and things like that. So it's interesting how they really, you know, construct their identities very differently uh, beyond these binaries. And that's why I think an ethnography of, you know, science and religion becomes very significant because as you all just mentioned, you know, so if you look at historical texts for that matter, uh, it's always about okay whether whether they are in conflict or you know there's a good relationship. But when we really look at the field, that's not how it is actually. So I think 
that's where I think anthropological studies uh, become significant to make sense of the everyday life of uh, these concepts. What is it that you overall argue, otherwise put, what is the perhaps most hopeful takeaway or takeaways from, from the book as a whole? Uh, okay, great. So in the book is actually, as I say, no, it's, the book is basically about the way in which one can make sense of uh, anthropologically the relationship between science and religion. It it has, of course, you know, uh, various meanings. Uh, but essentially, it is arguing that we need to really, you know, look at the category, the life of science and the life of religion uh, in a more, uh, uh, you know, detailed manner. One has to engage with these categories and uh, how they really work together in scientific institutions. And it is also methodological, as I have started by saying, that it is significant to look at actually the non-sites of, uh, you know, religion to really study religious life. So therefore, laboratory becomes an important category. So I'm trying to really bring in uh, theoretical and methodological questions from uh, STS, Science and Technology Studies, and Sociology of Religion, for that matter. So, uh, on the one hand, I think the book is arguing that it's important to look at the specificity of, you know, the science and religion life in India. But on the other hand, I'm also trying to argue how there can be a danger of really essentializing science and religion in India, as we know that this, this can actually lead to you know, various questions around cultural nationalism and things like that. So, and also like I have a separate chapter on, or a separate chapter on caste in, 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 in Indian scientific institutions. So when we think about actually science and religion in India, I think it is extremely important that we also talk about questions around caste in scientific institutions, uh, which I try to do uh, in, in the book. Yeah. So as you mentioned a bit earlier, how does one go beyond the binaries of conflict and complementarity? Yeah, that's a very tricky question, actually. So where I try to basically use some, you know, theoretical ideas from in, in my work, I was trying to actually use uh, Bruno Latour's work on modes of existence, where he tries to argue that, you know, uh, you know, there are different modes of existence. So religion is completely different from actually science. One need not to really compare and contrast actually both how their own life. So I was trying to really use that to understand the case of India to see that, you know, so this is also, this came from my conversation with scientists. In fact, they would argue that, you know, we don't really want to compare and contrast actually science and religion. This is a completely different. So therefore, one need not to really argue that actually that they are always together. Science and religion work in work or they are, they are, they coexist. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we also don't need to say that they are always in, in you know, fight, they're fighting all the time, right? So if we consider these as different categories, it's completely fine, actually, because that is how uh, the scientists kind of told me during the interviews that, you know, for us, uh, religion is different from science. But then the question comes in, what happens when you see the presence of religion in scientific institutions, right? So in the laboratories, for example, how do we make sense of, for example, larger questions or secular spaces in the Indian context, for sure, uh, you know, these are public funded institutions and these are secular institutions. How do we make sense of the presence of religion uh, in the secular institution? So, uh, yeah, I, therefore, I think it is very important that we need to uh, go beyond the binary, you know, both conflict and complementarity, but also try to see, uh, you know, what is really, uh, what is really seen as religion, what is really seen as, for example, culture, etc., 
uh, in the in the Indian setting, actually. Could you perhaps uh, provide uh, an example or a couple of examples for listeners who may not be as familiar with? What are some examples of religiosity in scientific institutional settings? Yeah, so I'm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you know, so if you if if you if you look at any scientific institutions in India, uh, you'll find the presence of religious rituals and religious rituals uh, from you know one particular religion. And for various historical and uh, sociological reasons, actually, they are they are statistically and uh, culturally numerous. Actually, they are major they are the majority in uh, population in the scientific institutions. For, and for that reasons, you have celebrations of you know all the rituals, all the celebration, all the festivals like such as Diwali, you know, Holi, Adinesh Chaturthi, Ayur Puja, etc., which I discuss actually in detail in the book. For example, the kind of acceptance. Uh, you know these rituals actually you have in scientific institutions, right? So clearly these uh, rituals are performed. These you know festivals are celebrated in institutions, and uh, uh, I was uh, you know intrigued. That I was I was very uh, interested in knowing how people who are not from actually these religions or this belief system would respond to uh, you know uh, these practices. Right. So, if you look at my chapter on actually caste, I, I speak to many, you know, Dalit students and uh, researchers, and they have very different uh, things to say. You know, they would argue that actually we have our own uh, cultural systems and belief system, but we are we don't really celebrate those in the institutions. And I think now it is changing because many institutions, including IITs, have you know Ambedkar Peria Pune study group, they try to you know, intervene in these matters of culture. So I, I was actually interested in understanding what is really considered as culture. So in a way, my work is an ethnography of culture and cultural, because we often use this category. So, you know, uh, this is culture and this is cultural. And how does it actually work in Indian scientific institutions is what I was trying to make sense of. So these rituals can be basically an example of, uh, you know, Forms of religiosity of those institutions, right? Would we? Uh, how do I frame this without it being a leading question? Um, uh, can we disambiguate culture from religious? Yeah, I think that's a key question that I was trying to really address in the book. Is that you know uh, can we make a distinction between cultural and religious? And this is exactly what you know many of my uh, you know scientists. Uh, also, they they made a distinction between cultural and religious. Now, for example, you know when you think about certain festivals and rituals, uh, I'll I'll give you an example that I discuss in the book, like you know Ganesh Chaturthi, uh, Diwali, and Holi. These uh, festivals were actually uh, by 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 the scientists, but then they make a distinction between actually. Uh, these forms as cultural, and then you also have other systems. That's, for example, Eid was perceived as religious. So there's a very interesting kind of distinction that they make between cultural and religious in the institution. So therefore, it's okay to really have cultural festivals in science institutions. You know. So what happens is actually the translation of religious into cultural actually gets certain kind of acceptance, social acceptance actually in the institution point of time, it loses its actually uh, religious identity. So it becomes cultural in that sense. Uh, during your interviews or writing process, what surprised you? Uh, 
really nothing really surprised actually because I've been reading texts uh, on this matter. But I think what is surprising was, of course, not again not surprising, but uh, kind of shocking was actually the the larger discussion on costs actually, right? So uh, you you see in the chapter, it's one of the detailed chapter in the book where I discuss how, for example, the way in which the idea of merit, the idea of passion was, uh, you know, ahistorically perceived. Uh, you know, like as if there is something about marriage, as if there is something about passion, without really looking at the histories of the background that need to come from, uh, which is in many ways actually in continuation with what Ajanta Subramanian has done in her book on actually IIT Madras. Why the subtitle Beyond Disenchantment? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, various reasons actually. Uh, of course, uh, first of all, uh, for a you know publisher's point of view. <laughs> Uh, second is actually, I thought this is, disenchantment is a very interesting category that we discuss all the time in sociology. And I really wanted to understand the everyday life of disenchantment, uh, looking at actually the case of India. So very clearly, there isn't any disenchantment, actually. Uh, so it's kind of, a you know, the, you know, the American historian of religion, Jason Josephson Stahl, in his very interesting book called The Myth of Disenchantment, looks at actually the genealogy of disenchantment, how it is actually not something that happens, etc. Right? So I wanted to understand in the Indian context how the idea or, or the concept of disenchantment actually works. It doesn't really work. I mean, uh, you know, so if, if one has to go with disenchantment, actually, science actually is going to be, uh, or, or science is going to decide the world. And, you know, so, but that's not how it really works among scientists. Right, so they're religious. They are. Uh, they still live with their the background of caste. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and also these backgrounds actually shape the way uh, they do their science sometimes. Sometimes it also shapes the way, the kind of places they want to be. And it's also interesting actually uh, if you look at uh, the way in which they would like to be part of these cultural groups. Uh, for example, even the atheist scientists that, they, that I, I, I spoke to and I document in the book, that they're atheists and they don't really believe in any god, would still would like to really be part of the cultural, uh, you know, uh, system that they belong to. And how does it work? It works, of course, through marriage, marrying from one's own caste, actually, in that sense. So I think, like, what I was trying to do by putting this category of disenchantment is to really understand, first, the social life of the concept of disenchantment in Indian context, and on the other hand, also to problematize, actually, uh, the idea of disenchantment as a 
you know, a historical category in that sense in Indian context. You mentioned your, your chapters, I believe, the final chapters on, um, on caste and, um, and atheism. Walk us through the structure of the book. How's the book structured? Yeah. Uh, the uh, the first chapter is actually uh, based on my archival work. It's a historical chapter where I'm trying to look at how the category of science and religion worked during you know, the post-independent India. I'm looking at actually the various conversations uh, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of India, uh, had on you know various systems of knowledge, especially Ayurveda. And what was his take on Ayurveda and how he was trying to really look at actually Ayurveda through the language of science and scientific method. And I was because he was creating actually the distinction of science and metaphysics. And actually, it's very interesting that he, he argues that, you know, of, of course, as you know very clearly, that he didn't really support, uh, you know, many of this knowledge system because he thought that these are unscientific and metaphysical systems, actually. So, for example, uh, you know, he, when during his uh, response to various uh, fellow members of constitutional assembly, like I was looking at the constitutional assembly debates, uh, he completely, uh, you know, disagreed uh, with the fact that should really support actually institutionalizing, you know, for example, systems such as Ayurveda, because he thought that this was uh, Ayurveda was actually lacking scientificity and and it doesn't really follow scientific method. In fact, in one response to uh, one of the fellow members, he said that the state is willing to support. Uh, any systems of knowledge if they follow scientific method. And unless they follow scientific method, the state is not in a position to really support. So, uh, support side, you know, uh, systems such as Ayurveda. So, I was trying to really look at in that chapter how the idea of science and religion box through these debates. So, which is historical. And then the next two chapters are actually uh, based on my field or trying to look at actually the different forms of religious life, rituals, uh, you know, festivals, etc., that happens within the scientific institutions. Then, you know, the atheists and their everyday life, how they deal with the question of science, religion, culture, etc. Then, the last chapter is to really look at how uh, and the life of social life of social political life of caste. Uh, in the institution that I have studied, but also incorporating examples from actually other scientific institutions. And then I'm trying to argue towards the end that actually the study of science and religion in India uh, should now, uh, you know, uh, go beyond actually science and Hinduism uh, because we don't really have, for example, interesting, there are of course uh, interesting works, but I think we need to have more works on when we use the word science and religion in India, we also need to have you know, uh, Sikhism, Jainism, Islam, Christianity, uh, and 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 various Adivasi belief systems, and the way in which, for example, they would really deal with questions of the uh, which is how I end the book. It's actually fascinating. Who would you say the book is for? Uh, the focus audience, you meant? Yeah, who's it for? I mean, I mean, I mean that in a general sense, interpret it as you will, but who? Who might most benefit from reading the book? What subfields or what what interests might it implicate? Yeah, the uh, you know uh, academic audience. But what is surprising is actually uh, the book was reviewed in very you know uh, many actually uh, larger sites such as the Wire, etc. So uh, so in, even though the book was actually meant for academic audience, anthropologists, historians of science, religious studies scholars. 
but uh, it really got attention from larger audience. So I think like, yeah, I mean, it, yes, I think both academic and non-academic. And, uh, and I must say that the Indian edition of the book was released just a couple of months ago, which is very helpful because uh, the earlier version was quite costly and it's a London edition. So now it's available in all the bookshops in India, which I'm quite happy about because now my former students would also get the book and say that I'm reading your book, which is very happy. Yeah, that's that's lovely. I, I can certainly relate. I mean, Rutledge is a fine press without question, but it's obviously A, um, um, academic and, and B, extensive, right? Uh, and so, so my two monographs are from publish with Rutledge, and um, uh, d- 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 I-, I teased once in a while that you know I'm not sure I can afford to buy my own books, but I, <laughs> but uh, but th- but I have a third book out. It's a public book. It's called The Stories Behind the Poses, and and, and very similar about. I was delighted actually that Bloomsbury India picked it up. Uh, I think a couple of weeks ago. Uh, come to think of it, there was. And if you can believe it, we happen to be recording today on International Yoga Day uh, uh, slash the 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 uh, summer solstice, uh, the longest day of the year in the northern hemisphere. Um, and uh, <laughs> if you can believe it, Times of India interviewed me about the stories behind the poses, and it was released just today. And I'm thinking, since when? <laughs> since when do you have academics <laughs> being covered? But but having said that. That bridging is precisely uh, one of the key elements of my own mission in the podcast, and that's why we—that's why it seems that it's a great fit. Because what, what do we do on the podcast? We're bridging the, the public uh, sort of academic divide. Initially, I mean, the podcast is pitched to the interested generalist, or or, or really a, a lifelong learner, or just a member of the public. And I was surprised over the years to learn that so many of our specialist colleagues listen. I think to myself. Why on earth are they, are they listening to this podcast? I ask questions like, "So who is Gandhi?" So you know what? <laughs> so, and I thought to myself, "Well, what other podcasts would they listen to? They listen to <laughs> they listen to this podcast." Um, but no, it's it's wonderful to see the it's, the bridging is wonderful. Is what my, my point? The bridging is great. Happy to see that for your book. Yeah, no, I'm very happy about your you know forthcoming book actually, Bloomsbury India. So basically, uh, you know, currently I'm actually. Uh, co-editing a book for them actually so which is called decolonial with keywords south asian attitudes and experiences i'm doing it with actually an, an anthropologist called sasanga Pereira at the south asian university so some of the questions that we are raising there is actually in continuation what i'm doing here in the sense of like looking at the you know the life of uh you know the life of decoloniality actually in the South Asian context now. So, of course, that's a completely different project, but I thought this Bloomsbury connection is fantastic. <laughs> no, 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 that's, well, it, it's relevant in that you, we organically preempted um, my my typically final question, uh, is which is, oh, what are you working on now? What are you working on next? So it's, it's great to hear that you're working on such issues. Of course, you know, scholarship's important in any niche, but certain, it seems that certain strands of scholarship I much more closely into current events, current issues, hot button issues. You know, um, uh, if if I'm doing a, a public talk and you know, what I'm going to present it as, uh, you know, this is the narrative structure of the Devi Mahatmya as related to Markandi Purana, or I'm going to say, hey, here's some ancient Indian myths on the sacred feminine, <laughs> right? So it's exactly the same talk, <laughs> but 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 being able to sort of um, being able to place it within a greater interest, I think, is 
often quite useful. Yeah. So um, you'll have to reappear on the podcast when that, that work is out. Regarding this work, is there anything else about this publication that you wanted to share or touch on? Uh, it's just that I, I'm very, you know, like uh, as a, an anthropologist, I'm excited about what's going to be the afterlife of this book in the sense that how people have, so different people have, you know, received it actually differently. For example, historians of science. So I was very happy to see how historians of science have, you know, received it well, you know, so I'm not an anti-historian of science as a trained historian of science, but the Robert Anderson has written a fantastic review of the books, uh, uh, you know, saying how important it is to look at texts like mine uh, for historians of science. So I'm actually happy about the fact that, uh, you know, so it's it's going to be almost a year now, and uh, the most important thing is indignation is out, so. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. For those listening, we have been speaking with Rennie Thomas on Science and Religion in India, brand new Rutledge publication as part of their uh, Science and Religion series. Uh, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating how this thing called science and this thing called religion relate to one another. Bye for now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.